Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. All right, well, let's move on to my favorite part of the book, which is part two, which is Get Well. And um, the, the chapter five, you talk about the pretenders, and you talk about the five pretenders that are the physical imbalances that masquerade as mental illness. And I have to tell you, Kelly, as soon as I finished reading it, I texted my daughter who's at Northwestern. I'm like, B12, I'm sending you B12 patches. Uh, please tell everyone, what are these? these pretenders yeah so in psychiatry we don't we're not trained to ask the question why in fact in conventional medicine in general but it's it's even more potentially problematic in psychiatry because there's literally no tests right there's no blood test there's no EEG there's no brain scan I mean you can be diagnosed with a label that you could have to manage for the rest of your life you know in a seven-minute interview or interaction with a primary care doctor so there's a lot at stake here and what I found is that there are at least five very important, totally reversible physiologic causes of what we are calling psychiatric, right? So you go in, you think, oh, I'm definitely depressed, I have anxiety, I have insomnia, but in fact, you might have an imbalance in your thyroid because the, the symptoms of hypothyroidism, which is something I'm intimately familiar with having been diagnosed with it 10 years ago are literally identical to those for major depressive disorder. If you don't have a doctor who knows how to check or you're not yourself you know, educated, and this is very basic, this is not complex stuff, then you're not going to look. It's like that, you know, that parable about looking for the light over in the dark, you know, looking for the light rather in the, in the, under the lamppost rather than where it might be, right? Just because you happen to be familiar with that model. That, this is what's happening in typical doctor's offices. They just don't know how to look for these imbalances. And so they're never going to find them, right? Um, so that's one thyroid imbalance. Blood sugar imbalance is a major masquerader because I would say, I, I don't know that there's an exception, you know, to the rule that we are eating diets, whether it's through processed flour or actual processed sugar that are taking our endocrine system on a a veritable roller coaster. And that's not because something is wrong with us or our bodies, right? It's a natural, wise sensitivity to a mismatch with a dietary intake that never was meant to be, right? That never was um, designed to allow us to feel free and healthy and strong, right? So let alone mentally clear. And this can masquerade as anything, you know, ranging from poor concentration to like brain, people call brain fog. Um, all the way to serial panic attacks. So this is a, a major player um, in the kind of tugging on your fight or flight uh, chemistry. So another, as you mentioned, is B12 deficiency. There are many micronutrient deficiencies, particularly in the B vitamin category, that can wreak havoc on mood, behavior, and cognition. This is just an incredibly common one, and it might have to do with um, not only dietary choices um, that can lead to deficiencies in B12. Many of the patients who come to me are uh, come to me as vegans um, or vegetarians, and that might be a perfect fit for someone, but maybe not for them. And also because even if you are eating animal foods, sometimes the digestion um, and absorption of B12 is, is not sometimes, it is complex. 
right? So there's a certain type of um, acidity that triggers enzymatic release, and then there's intrinsic factor that allows you to absorb it. So it's not just even exposure to it, it's also metabolizing it that's important. There's an incredible um, case study that I reference in the book from the New England Journal, you know, about a woman who was so uh, B12 deficient that she ended up being diagnosed with catatonic depression, treated with multiple medications, and it wasn't until she was transferred to another um, psychiatric hospital and evaluated for a serum B12 level that she was found to be at the low end of the range, which is really, you know, tells you something about these ranges, that she was exactly. even within the range. And um, after two shots of, uh, two injections of B12, she was not only back to her baseline, but back to her like 27 years earlier baseline. So it's very relevant. Another um, big advocacy that I think many of us in the health space have is for the antigenicity of um, dairy and wheat proteins. So in psychiatry in particular, um, but also I have a strong interest in hormonal health. This is a major player. For me, I think it was a huge piece of my autoimmunity and I have seen, we've seen cases through our online program and in my practice that shouldn't exist. You know, 18 years of lupus resolved in five weeks, for example. And when it's that dramatic, I always suspect gluten intolerance because there are very few other of these masqueraders that are this powerful a needle mover. And when your brain is inflamed because of gluten and related proteins and dairy called casein, it's hugely derailing. Right, and there are many theories about why this is more prevalent, including the loss of diversity in our inner ecology and microbiome. But suffice it to say, it's such an easy fix. You know, uh, it, that is the magic pill. If that's ever what you think, you think it's an easy fix, but you know, talk to someone who's obsessed with bagels, as the example you give. Yeah. You know, someone who loves their bagel and and cafe mocha or latte in the morning. I know, change is hard. So you have to be desperate enough. You have to be desperate enough. That's exactly but it. It just I did it. I went um, yeah. 18 months without gluten and dairy. And the moment I brought it into my diet because I was fully healed and I was feeling great, I realized they're so addictive. Well, it's not just an idea, right? It's not just even the psychological aspects necessarily because we know that their metabolites plug into opiate receptors in the brain. So they are literally addictive. And you think about, you know, you think about bread and circus in the Roman times. So you think about a baby's, you know, relationship to her mother's lactation. I mean, it's not a stretch to sort of, you know, understand that these are, are loaded agents, right? Um, and, and when I say it's, it's, a, it's an easy fix, it's because you can go to virtually any restaurant uh, you know, even in these small corners of, of the world. And, and there's familiarity with this idea of like flour free, you know, cheese and milk free eating. But listen, you have to, yeah, you've got to be ready for a change and you have to be interested in self-experimentation. So I'm very into self-experimentation as a path to self-discovery because we don't all have, you know, the, the easy dialect of our bodies. We have to learn it. And so this is a major one. I mean, if there's, if there's one thing I would recommend to anyone who's ever been labeled with any chronic illness, it's give yourself a trial, you know, of, of it's huge. And, and I know that you and, and all of my colleagues would agree with that because we've, we've seen it, you know. And it's, so, to, it's, it's so hard to do only up until you make that decision. Thank you. And yeah. once you make that decision, like, no, it's done. It's done. It's out of my life. 
to your point, implementing it is very simple. There's right. so many alternatives. Right. So for me, I love cookies and cakes. It's, it is what it is. I've stopped trying to battle why I am the way I am. So we make almond flour and key-based yeah. stuff, right? Exactly. So there are alternatives. We've got a cauliflower-based pizza now that we do at home. Um, dairy, you know, sprout some almonds, blend them up, and you've got some really nice milk. There are multiple ways to implement. It's just making that decision that you're going to do it. And I did the same with alcohol. It was, you know, one day I was drinking and the next day I wasn't. And I haven't had, um, it's been three years. Wow. And I've not had a sip and I don't plan on it because again, I know how addictive it is. And I know if I take a sip, it's this very slippery slope for me. Yeah. And um, I just don't want to go down there anymore. So you're exercising the most powerful human, you know, asset we have, which is choice. You're exercising yeah. choice. And then what happens is you have a lived experience in your own body of the why, right? So if you touch a flame, you don't need to say, don't touch the flame, don't touch the flame. Your body knows, right? You just don't. And it's a similar process of as you have a lived experience of these, um, the clarity that comes from mitigating these exposures, the commitment is organic, right? Like no pun intended. Um, and so the last thing is the role of other medications in the induction of what we call psychiatric symptoms. And there are a number of medications that have documented um, adverse effects that fall into the realm of psychiatric uh, syndromes. And those are including things like depression, but also bipolar disorder, ADHD. And you know they're basically all of the sacred cows of the conventional model. So everything from antibiotics to acid blockers that are over the counter, you can get them at CVS or Walgreens. They, Walgreens, they've never been studied for more than six weeks of use. And you start taking an acid blocker, but if you don't change your diet, why would you ever not need it? So obviously it's going to become a long-term med, right? So birth control was a big one for me. I used to think that you know birth control and statins and Prozac should be like equally over the counter, right? But when you begin to really understand the documented adverse effects of these medications, um, vaccines are, of course, another one, pain relievers, there is an untold story. And it makes sense because we are, again, going to the butcher to learn about veganism. We're going to the conventional um, doctors to learn about their tools. And they're going to tell us of the, you know, the nature of their tools are benefits outweigh the risks. But it's, it's an incomplete exposure to those risks that these doctors are being trained in, and I, I was certainly one of them. So you don't want to take, you know, Zoloft for your birth control side effects. It doesn't make sense, right? You want to get to the root and uh, resolve it there. Absolutely, and we've got some very interesting stats that you share on teenagers mm -hmm. and uh, what birth control pill does to them. Sort of 80% of teenagers who were on birth control were also prescribed something for depression. And um, it's just those kinds of statistics that make, as a parent, make you sit up and go, my goodness, um, how can this not information not have been shared more aggressively and more cautiously in terms of how we're willy-nilly giving the pill to, to our teenagers? I've got two really quick questions before we dive into Chapter 6. So the first is you mentioned blood sugar balance. So how do you come out on intermittent fasting? Because clearly that's going to do something nasty to your blood sugar, right? Most of the, my patients and those who are attracted to this kind of work um, have been struggling with such a degree of physiologic stress response that, in my opinion, intermittent fasting is, is not the best 
way to win <laughs> out the gate. Um, that doesn't mean that it couldn't be an eventual, you know, uh, thing to explore. But the folks that I'm working with, because they're often what are called parasympathetic dominance, which is um, a rubric that I, I learned from my mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, they have already uh, very strong pancreatic innervation. So they have that, that high and low, that hangry, um, that relationship to their blood sugar that's very fragile to, to begin with. And so it requires a lot of stability, right, um, to be able to intermittent fast comfortably, let alone with benefits. And I think there are tremendous benefits. I mean, you just have to go to literature to know that autophagy and all of the, the um, natural evolutionary benefits of, of there being at least, you know, a 12-hour window between where your digestive system can relax is difficult to argue with. But I think that's an aspirational goal for, for the folks who are attracted to this work typically. And I was delighted to hear you say that. And I mean, you recommend typically two, two and a half hours you know, eat something, because I feel like we're in this mode where we all propose one fad, and yeah. we propose it as if it's perfect for everybody, right? Keto, it's perfect for every, everybody should do keto, or everyone should do intermittent fasting, and I have personally realized, or everyone should be a vegan. It's not true. Yeah. We are unique, and Within a month, we vary, right? Every month, it's different. So we're heading into fall. Our body's needs are going to change. So intermittent fasting may have worked fine for me uh, in summer, may not work as fine for me in fall. And I loved how in your book, you talk a lot about just listening to yourself and not just following the fads. Yeah, it's the only way, you know, I entered into something of a personal crisis. It was one of my dark nights when my mentor passed very suddenly in 2015. And, you know, part of what I felt I was losing was access to customizable diets because he worked with 12 different diets across the spectrum of individuals. And he, of course, like Weston Price and Pottinger and others before him, insisted that there is no one diet for everyone. Um, but then how do you figure out which one is for who, right? And so I understood over the process of my, my healing that what I am here to offer is, is simply um, the mindset framing of a one-month template. And this one-month template is restrictive enough of many of the factors that are tugging and pulling on your you know, perceptual tools such that you can get very clear after this month and you can begin to open up that channel to your own preferences and your own intuition because we understand now, I think many of us, that the good news and the bad news, as I say, is that you are in control. You're the only one who knows. There is no expert. You know, like the way I manage my health, there is no one out there on the planet. I don't have a doctor. I don't have a nothing who knows better than me about my body. And that doesn't mean that I can't get support, right? So support in nurturance and holding and, you know, guiding, that's different. But to assume that somebody, anybody knows better what you need is, is problematic because especially in the realm of nutrition, there's a reason there's no consensus. And the reason is because you're meant to figure this out for yourself. But what a daunting task that is if you don't have the clarity to perceive your own native preferences beyond wine and donuts and bagels. Chapter six. Uh, which is a reunion with your body in 30 days. 
And you talk about the three pillars, which are diet, detox, and stress response. And this, again, this entire section was amazing. It's so filled with very specific actionable things as well as case studies and stories. For those of you who are listening or watching, go out and buy the book. Um, just this section itself, it's, it's such a fabulous blueprint that's going to help you. Um, but with that said, let's share some critical insights into uh, these three pillars. And I, I love that you say prescription level commitment to these 30 days. Um, talk yeah. about that as well. Yeah. So, you know, I um, ask any of my patients that can be a bit hardcore and a bit heavy handed. And I think there's a place for that, for commitment and discipline. Um, and I'm also finding, you know, that the protocol that I present in the book is the exact protocol that I've used with patients. It's the exact protocol that's in my online program to the extent that, you know, my partner was reading the book next to me one day. He's like, wow, you've really given away the goods in this book, haven't you? And because I know people can operationalize it. I mean, I couldn't from a book, but I, people have, and I know that, that the determined and ready individual can get this information and do it themselves. Um, and so the pillars are quite basic. You know, it's this dietary template that is summarized as an ancestral template that's restrictive of um, these addictive foods, you know, so whether it's the um, uh, grains or dairy or processed sugar, coffee, alcohol, and really just leaves you with food, with whole food, you know, natural salt and lots of filtered water. And, uh, and then there's the detox element, which is really most relevant for those on medications or with severe and disabling chronic illness. This is um, one of the greatest gifts my mentor left me, which is his particular instructions for coffee enemas. Um, I'm very, very protective of that. And so if you're in that kind of a situation, I believe that you need community and you should not be doing this alone. And trust me, I've learned this the hard way. Um, so that is sort of an introduction to the use of detox as we do in Vital Mind Reset, where we have a community for people who, pretty much the only community, as far as I know, for people who are going through um, the process of medication taper with many other side benefits. But there are certainly other methods of detox and means to, you know, empty your bucket that also involve conscious consumerism, right? So using your, your body's technology, but then also looking around, you know, how are you relating to the lotion you use, to the air you breathe, to the water you drink, to um, the, your relationship to your Wi-Fi in your house, and just beginning to bring an eye, right? And some of these things take a long time, you know? I just recently, recently, I've been in this for 10 years, you know, I just recently wired my laptop for the first time ever. I finally was ready. I said, I'm done with Wi-Fi, wi and I'm just going to do it. When you're ready, you're ready, you know? So, so I present these tools, the last of which um, is the relaxation response or meditation piece. Um, I present them as a toolkit, you know, to be used when you're ready for that month of your life. Um, I think it's a sacred portal, and I think if you come to it with a level of commitment that is probably the first time in your life you've ever turned toward yourself and said, I care enough about you, you know, to do this, um, then the results can be absolutely game-changing. And to the extent that shocks me, I mean, I have an entire um, team of clinical volunteers, doctors and medical students, who are writing up the cases that come out of this protocol. I mean, you hear what I just described. It's not that revolutionary. But 
when you're sending what I call a signal of safety to the nervous system from all of these different degrees, and you're doing so from a mindset and ethos of empowerment, which obviously the whole first part of the book is um, in the interest of kind of incubating, incredible things come online. And your body does the work. We can't engineer it. Like we, we don't know how to make a seed grow. We can only create the conditions for that to happen. And that's essentially what this is. One of the things you talk about are the four toxic ingredients, and you talk a lot about how we just have to watch out for these toxic ingredients, which is the worst. If there's one toxic ingredient that everybody should be reading labels and be mindful of not bringing into their lives, what would that be? Hmm. Like in personal care products or food? Um, both, actually, or either. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the first one that comes to my mind is fluoride. And that's also because I grew up, you know, in the New York area where my dad would talk about how delicious the tap water was. And there was this almost like fetishizing of the, the tap water there. And then, of course, you know, several decades later, here I am with a Hashimoto's thyroiditis diagnosis. Um, and, and there's a real sort of, I think, misunderstanding of fluoride as being a generally benign, potentially even dentally beneficial agent. And not only is it, you know, in ways an endocrine disruptor, but it also even you know, can play a role in calcifying the pineal gland. It's just highly problematic um, and it's easily avoided, you know, if you begin to learn about um, filtering your water and choosing different toothpaste and maybe as an advanced stage, like finding a, you know, biological dentist who is aware of these things and thinks about these things. Um, and then I would say, you know, with, with ingredients, it becomes tough because whenever there are ingredients, like you're already in a realm where there's, <laughs> you know, potential setup um, for failure. But I think um, that looking out for glyphosate, looking out for the role of one of the, the most studied villains in the um, pesticide herbicide arena, you know, which is, of course, Monsanto's crown jewel. Um, you, you can expect that to be in any product that has not organic right. soy or corn, um, but also not organic wheat or potatoes. Um, and of course, there are other instances, but those are kind of the big ones to bear in mind. So if you're choosing a product, and it may say natural, and it may say gluten-free, but let's say the first ingredient is corn, and it's not organic, then you know it's in there, right? Yes. So That's just one of the kind of like little tricks you you pick up as you begin to like navigate, you know, the, the supermarket aisles, but that's a pretty huge one. I just put out another study on its connection to, um, to depression. And of course there's um, history making uh, lawsuits being paid out around the implicating um, the role of glyphosate and cancer finally. Um, so the tide is turning in terms of awareness, but these are kind of like small little things you can. Chapter seven. Okay. This is, this is it. This is the hardcore stuff here. Moving beyond meds and navigating the dark night. All right, tell us, what yeah. is the dark night and how do those who are on meds and they don't want to be on meds, how do they navigate their way out? Yeah, so I advocate for first things first, right? So you, you may not be poised to go on a spiritual quest, right? You may just have B12 deficiency and need to know, you know the signs and how to address that. So that's why I say, you know, first things first, establish a self-care routine, which is obviously what the middle part of the book is about, so that you can get into your most resilient, most self-possessed relationship with your body, perhaps for the first time in your life. And then you can consider 
you know, coming off of medication or examining the role of meds. Like even with birth control, I tell my patients do not keep taking it, right? So, so there's no medication modification during the month. And that's what's incredible about it is that you can still feel so shifted even when you're still taking these medications that are, are taking a toll. Um, so the, you know, this book I wrote in many ways um, to validate those I feel deserve um, a special kind of acknowledgement um, and honoring. And I call them the artists, right? So we refer to them as the canaries in the coal mine. But, you know, I think that this is a book about healing the artists. In fact, it could have been called that, right? Because I believe that these individuals deserve a chance um, at identifying as not broken and as understanding that their most um, tender parts, their most vulnerable parts, that's where their power lies. So how do you access that, right? Like how do you go into the cave of your fear where you have been told never go there and you, you have to get past the dragon and you have to get to the gem? How does one ever do that, right? Well, it turns out there are people who, who have the fortitude, who have the audacity, and who have the courage, and I've watched them do it. It gives me goosebumps to talk about it because I've had this privilege. I've watched hundreds of these people do this, and because they've done it, it's more possible for others to follow in their footsteps, right? So this is not, as I've said, just about coming off your meds. Unfortunately, you know, if you've been on medication for more than sometimes even two to six months, right, psychiatric medication, and you just kind of want to like see what it's like without it, it may not be an option for you, literally. And I've come, I've come to understand that. It's been extremely humbling for me. And I want it to be an option for everyone. But those for whom it is an option to come off of these medications in a way that is physically, you know, safe um, and allows them the archetypal, really, opportunity to initiate to themselves, to understand who they are, right? To come into that space of transformation so that they can move past their child and adolescent consciousness and really claim themselves as a, an adult who can meet their own needs and who has internal agency and authority and who looks nowhere for anyone to do anything for them beyond, you know, what they've already done for themselves and who's there to share and give to the world and serve, right? This is a model that I have witnessed be born, right? And so this process, this journey is not for everyone. But if it's for you, you'll know. You'll know because you will be irrepressibly magnetized towards this. And I hope that I have offered, you know, something of, you know, a, a roadmap with signposts and, you know, some reassurance that you're not crazy and that, that the beauty on the other end of this process is going to be blinding, you know. But that dark night is a space that typically involves tremendous confusion, a sense of identity diffusion where you just don't know who you are anymore. You feel like you may never be loved again, you know. Um, lots of fear around um, things like insomnia or, you know, hyper arousal, we call it, or like a state of agitated anxiety is typically very common, unfortunately. Experiences of suicidality is almost universal. 
Um, and so I have now a lot of experience in that realm and I've, I've never flinched. And that's why I've seen that it is part of the old you dying. Right. Is, is this feeling like I cannot go any longer. And it's true because you cannot go any longer with the mask on. You cannot. Right. And so what is, what is leaving, right? What is exiting? What is dying? It is that understanding of who you were that you're so attached to that you think without it, you might existentially melt away, right? Exactly. So these are deep realms, but the mystics of ancient times have described this space, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, um, it, it really is universal. It's, there's something about the maturation of human consciousness, the adultification process that is universal from today to mm-hmm. millennia ago. And mm-hmm. I, I, have seen that coming off of psychiatric medications has for whatever reason become a portal to this process. The only other comparable one I've, I've, you know, been able to witness it with the same stages and, and everything is, um, is natural childbirth. Right. Exactly. And you of course, to push the baby out, you have to go through that experience. There's, there is no alternative, but what you have at the end is, is this divine new soul. And I think um, I love that example because in the book you talk about how that is something very akin to this process of rebirth, yeah. rebirthing through the dark night. Yeah. Um, and, and you're brought to the brink of what you think is, you're capable of, right? Exactly. You- and I love that. I love that you say that we can do it. We are just limited by our own self-doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, that we absolutely can heal ourselves. Our body knows what it needs to do. We just need to give it that right environment, and then be willing to go through that process. Part three, um, getting free. You talk about, and this was very controversial for some people, I'm sure it's all about sort of the religion of medicine. You know, we've all bought into this religion of medicine. Um, and the most important thing that I took away from that, that, that I, I'd love for you to share with, the, with, with our viewers, is just this persistent belief that it's not genetic that I'm not cursed because my mother had cancer or my grandparents, whatever, that I have control. And of course, this whole science of epigenetics. Um, but talk a little bit about sort of getting free and, and the biology of belief as well, right? All of this is just so critical and ingredient to us getting through uh, this, this rebirthing process. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, if we um, subscribe to this idea that we are born with faulty genes and it's just a matter of time until they manifest and then we have to deal with it forever and we look back on our you know lineage and we can say oh well my mom struggled with this her mom struggled with it, my aunt did so there must be something to that and I think what we are now learning through what's often described as quantum biology is that there are factors um, that extend so far beyond what could ever be conveyed in the, you know, protein coding genes of our, our very limited genome and all of the disappointment that came with the sequencing of the human genome and our recognition that we are, you know, scarcely more complex than an earthworm. So what else is going on here? How do I become this, right? What, it, what are my thoughts? What are my emotions? Like, how do I, how do I manifest out of the void, essentially, as this very unique being? Um, and we're beginning to see, wow, there is, there are kind of fields, right? Um, sometimes they're called morphic fields that 
are creating the possibility for new people to kind of like come into, right? So I came into a field that already existed in my family. Now, what did that field consist of? Well, certainly some biological elements, but it also consisted of responses to trauma, um, belief systems around, you know, finances, belief systems around, um, you know, education and, and pain and grief. And, you know, there are learned behaviors, but it's, I think, even more than just the psychological transmission, like, oh, my mom thought that way and she taught me, so now I know. Um, and that's what we're actually finding is so mysterious, you know, when it comes to inheritance, even biological inheritance, um, that there are inexplicably, at least thus far, or at least to me, um, you know, means of transmitting stress signatures, for example, or trauma patterns um, that really validate this concept that we are living with trauma and pain beyond what we have generated in our own lifetime. And so when you reckon with all of that, it's pretty, it's pretty daunting. But the incredible thing is that it's all up for evolution, right? So I am living proof of that. I had one belief system 10 plus years ago, and now I have another. If you look at a picture of me from 11 years ago, and you look at a picture of me today, I practically look like a different human being, you know, and, and that can't be explained through the expression of my genes. There's something else going on here. And what I find so interesting is that as people step into this mindset that resolves victimhood, that begins to find meaning in what otherwise was the, you know, sort of random experience of being subjected to bad genes and bad timing and bad luck, as they begin to step into their own process of self um, care and self-love, they begin to radiate, literally, like literally, the, the people that I see and work with, um, they become radiant beings, you know, and, and I don't think that's just figurative. So these are the kinds of mysteries that are being unpacked, I think, um, one lived experience at a time. And it has everything to do with what you can open up to. Um, and I think it's very hard to open up to a belief system without a lived experience of it. And that's part of what, you know, I've tried to create the conditions for, because otherwise you can enter into a lot of what's called spiritual bypassing or, or attachment to these lofty concepts that sound really great, but then when the rubber hits the road, you, you don't live it and then you judge yourself and it becomes this kind of spiral of the old patterns just with like a new cloak on. So that, that's why this process of like shedding the old skin or rebirthing yourself um, does involve, you know, it does involve some confrontation with areas of yourself that you um, might have wanted to run from, perhaps because they represent your ancestry and what your parents believed or what you were raised to believe. And now you see it doesn't fit you anymore, but that doesn't mean you have to reject that part of yourself. It just means you can hold it in a different priority, right? You can give it a little seat at the table, the kids' table over there. In chapter nine, you talk about sort of coming home to you, and you talk about um, how do you deal with the family dynamic and the friends dynamic? It's, you know, the 30 days that you identified the 18 months that I lived through, this stuff's hard because the family makes it hard. You know, it's the rolling of the eyes and you've gone off the reservation. It's everybody eats gluten. We grew up eating rotis. What do you mean I can't eat? You know, there's just a lot of 
conflict when you begin to make those significant changes that have to be made if you want to evolve out and, and sort of um, create this healthier version of you. There's so many things you mentioned. What is one thing you've seen work where someone who's trying to heal is having a hard time with the friends and family situation? What is the one tactic or approach that might work? Wait to be asked, I would say, right? Because as we begin to enter into this realm, the little zealot in us is born, right? And so as you begin to heal and you begin to discover, wow, I had this power all this time and all I needed was this information, invariably you're going to want to share it. And the people closest to you are going to be the first ones you want to tell, like, yeah, I'm on this diet and here's what it consists of and here's what I have to do and you should really not be eating pasta anymore and here's why. And, you know, I think it's extremely common and I certainly have been there like in proselytizing mode. And the truth is nobody responds to being told what to do. Nobody likes that. Zero percent of people. Exactly. And, and it also doesn't work, right? So the invitational model where people see that radiant self, right? Where people see, wow, what is she up to, right? Allow that to be the invitation where people ask you what you're doing, right? If you know you, you can't necessarily trust those individuals to be able to move beyond their fear and reactivity in order to enter into curiosity, right? If you can't trust somebody to do that, then why put yourself in the position of having to dual egos? You know, that's what's, that's what's going to happen. I think the challenge is, like, if you're at home, are you cooking multiple meals? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. And this is where there's, like, a self, you know, self personal responsibility, that's very important, right? Because your parents or your sibling, they can't make it hard for you. You can allow them to make it hard for you, but you allow them to make it hard for you because there's also a potential where they do their weird, judgy thing, annoying thing, and you're cool. Right. You're still doing yours. You BYO'd your whole Thanksgiving meal, you know? There is a tendency to slip a little bit back into victim patterns when we are with our family. This is so Absolutely. natural. So natural. We want to be like, you don't understand me. Exactly. And, <laughs> and you're just, you know, you're such a muggle. You be supportive of my healing journey. Yes. And, and the truth is that they are, I mean, there are exceptions certainly, but often it's not their role. And if they, if they were uber supportive, God, that's even harder because you need to do this by yourself, not with your parents. Your parents don't come on this journey with you. It's your individuation process. So if you have parents or siblings who are, you know, who treat you like the black sheep, that's the way it's meant to be, right? And maybe you need a little space from them, loving space. That's fine, right? But it's very tempting to think that the only way this is going to feel good is if everyone I love comes with me. The truth is the people who are ready to come with you will do so, but not everyone is going to be ready and that's okay. They'll come with you eventually in their way, right? And you'll cross paths a little bit here, a little bit there, but finding a way to compassionately relate to people who fundamentally don't agree or are threatened by what you're doing is a part of this process of never abandoning yourself, right? Your only responsibility is to take care of you, of you. Stop. I love that. That's it. I'm going to ask you, how are you pharma-free? You talk about the fact that you and your girls 
have been pharma free. And I'm thinking, what do you do when they fall and scrape their knees? So give our listeners and our viewers a little insight into Dr. Kelly Bergen's pharma free life, because I'll tell you that's, that's my target. Mm-hmm. Um, we've obviously tossed all the NSAIDs out and the, you know, the painkillers and all the usual stuff. Um, but help us understand how you can lead a very pharma free life today. Yeah. So, you know, this is not a recommendation. It's just, it, I think it needs to be presented as, as an option, right? Because when I say, when I reference Maya Angelou and I say, you know, when you know better, you do better. How do you know it's an option to live without pharmaceuticals if you never heard that somebody is doing that, right? So, so I, it's more presented in that spirit for me and my healing. Um, this boundary has been very important. You know, I put down my prescription pad 10 years ago. I have never started a patient on medication again. That has been very important for me. Who knows? Maybe I'm burning off karma, you know, from all the (laughs) prescriptions I wrote to pregnant women of all people. So, so that's been a very important boundary. And honestly, in my household, yes, we don't use any pharmaceutical products of any kind ever. And, um, you know, from all of them, any of them, you name it under any circumstances. Um, And it's not so much like a dogma, although it certainly can sound like that. It's not so much that as it, it just doesn't make sense in, in the worldview that I inhabit. And that's why I introduce concepts like German new medicine, um, which is just one modality. You know, Louise Hay has another um, modality that, you know, she uh, popularized, but there are many other emotion code is another, there are many others where there is an understanding that even accidents happen for a reason. And that sounds like, oh my God, you're blaming the victim. What are you doing? That's insane. There, is, there are random forces. And yes, the moments that we are watching crystallize before our eyes are the result of you know, trillions of different interacting variables. And there is a randomness for sure. But I prefer to live in a universe where actually there's meaning everywhere. And honestly, the reason is because it feels better to live in that world because then I'm not scared, right? And I can, I can find the meaning and I do not suffer, right? So like my, one of my friend's um, daughter just broke her toe. And like the first, like in a rather violent, you know, kind of accident in the door and whatever. Mm-hmm. And so the first place that we go to sharing this ethos is not, you know, how do we give her antibiotics and, and painkillers and blah, blah, blah. It's, What's the significance of that toe, you know, in an emotional um, way, like in, in certain, so again, I'm very interested in German new medicine. I find great pearls there and there are other modalities, but you can learn what that message might've been. Now, if you have a sore throat or a urinary tract infection or whatever it might be presenting itself symptomatically, something that's not necessarily like an accident like that. It can also be very tempting to feel like I've got to get back to life. Like this is so interfering and so problematic, let alone potentially scary. Um, You know, if it gets worse or goes to my kidneys or I have a toothache and then I get an ear infection and it goes to my brain or whatever people are told. And if you, you know, if you choose to believe that the body, this is your body showing you something. It's you showing you something. Then there's like nothing to fight here. And then the interventions are more about support. How do I support and nurture my body? So that's where things like, you know, flower remedies or homeopathy or herbs, um, 
<laughs> chicken soup, you know, that's where these things come in and you just choose not to freak out. It's a, it's really just a culture of saying, opting out of the freak out, you know, because that's what we do. Grown adults are just constantly freaking out about these fear, constant fear. But it's like, it's fine. Everything is fine. The symptoms yeah. resolve. And because I've lived this way, I see they resolve always. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think fear has been used as a way to really sell. We, we use fear very successfully in commercial practice to create sales. And unfortunately, um, a big part of healing is getting out of that fear-based mode of living. And uh, I think you do a great job sharing how some of the tools, et cetera, that we can all deploy. Chapter 10, you talk about the faith in uh, the grand design, and you've already been touching upon it. You've got some wonderful recommendations on how we can man up or woman up and create sort of um, the reality that we want. It's back to, I found your book very empowering because mm -hmm. it's all about taking back control over your own wellness and your own life instead of assuming that somebody else is responsible. You know, I got sick. Well, it's the doctor's problem now to fix me. This is more about you can create the reality that you want. And um, just because of interest of time, you know, you talk about psychedelics, um, ecstatic dance, which I do. Uh, silent meditation, kundalini, qigong, breath work. Which is the one that you would recommend for most people? Which of these have you found to be most effective? Mm. Yeah, so this is the chapter I lose a lot of people. <laughs> There's a lot of criticism about this chapter. Yeah, and I that. <laughs> I get it, yeah. You know, because, listen, I'm, I have a lot of polarities within me. And, and I, you know, I can, I can play you know, doctor scientists and we can talk about the microbiome and epigenetics or I, I can play in the, the spiritualist playgrounds. And this book, I think, is, um, I don't know, there aren't a ton of examples out there that bridge that world, right? Because the, the spiritual books don't really talk much about the body and certainly not about medications. And then the, the medical health and wellness books, like, don't always go deep into, you know, the dark night and a lot of shadow work and that kind of stuff. So my, my hope is that this is like, a broad menu, um, and this chapter is really for those who want to, to go deeper, you know, and, and maybe you're a former atheist like me, you know, and you don't understand what, what it means to feel connected to everything on the planet, or, or you don't know what people are talking about when they talk about God. Um, you know, what does it mean to feel totally perfect, right? Or beautiful. Like, what is it to feel rapture? What is it to feel a kind of awe or ecstasy that just has tears streaming down your face? Like, <laughs> this, these are experiences that shouldn't be reserved for, you know, the select few on the planet. These are, this is part of the, the, the range of, of human dynamism that we should all be entitled to access. It's just some of us may need a little more assistance than others. Um, and that's where these tools come in. I mean, certainly if I had to pick one, I would choose uh, dance because I, um, I believe that our, our bodies um, are designed for this kind of movement that is purposeless, if you will, you know, where it's not athletics and it's not um, team sports and it's not even running from point A to point B. It's just for simply for the joy of it. And um, I am a big believer in community-based 
um, dance because, you know, you can turn on music in your room and that's great. And if you want to get a little comfortable in your body starting there, that's perfect. But when you come into a field of individuals who are all, and you know, from ecstatic dance, it's not about looking hot and it's not about like, you know, being sexy in your body. It's a, it's a therapy, right? So the music is meant to help you come into your body and potentially move and release stored emotion. Now that concept would have sounded way woo-woo to me until I learned about the work of Candace Pert, you know, who wrote Molecules of Emotion and is one of the founders of psychoneuroimmunology. Um, this is a, it's a real concept, you know, and, and there are different modalities um, that can help you access that. Kundalini is one of them. Kundalini is definitely not for everyone. Um, but I'm not sure that there's, I think everyone can dance. Everyone can dance. And I think everyone should. Um, and there are no side effects. There are no risks. And within two hours, you know, you, I, I went to Ecstatic Dance, our friends um, lead every month. And there was a newbie there and she started, you know, crying at the end. And she said, this was the most incredible experience of my life. All we did was dance in a dark room for two hours. So that's all it takes. You know, it's kind of like if you've ever done eye gazing, you know, where you, you just stare at somebody for like two minutes, invariably both people are crying, you know, that's all it takes. It's like, we're so ready. We're so ready. And we just need those conditions to humanize and remember, you know, who, who we are in our essence, which is exactly. you know, joy filled individuals and in bodies that are themselves a bliss technology. I think dance is the truest form of self-expression. And I think anybody who says otherwise hasn't given it a chance. Hasn't given it a chance. Um, it's, it is my favorite way to just let go. And um, I'll go to Zumba classes there's a new Bollywood Zumba class we have at our local. Um, I've heard about this, but I haven't been. I'm a huge Zumba fan, and I haven't been to this new one, but I'm very excited about you it. you got to try the Bollywood Zumba. It is so much fun. And so fun. I actually cried the last time I was doing the Bollywood Zumba because I was just so incredibly, radiantly happy. Just oh, leaping and jumping and spinning. And it's, it's just truly remarkable. Kelly, this book is... I think the path forward to so many people out there who are ready, they're ready. You know, they, they know they cannot continue the way they've been living. And they're at that point is like you rightly said, you have to get that point. Of, yeah. sort of, I can't take this anymore. There has to be a better way in order to then transition into that prescription level commitment that your 30 day plan requires, or frankly, any healing plan requires. You can't do two days yes, two days no. You, you just can't. This book is amazing. So my one final question to you is, for those who are ready, what is the one most important thing they can start doing immediately to own themselves? Mm. So it's all about creating the conditions for a, like a micro experience of change. And so in fact, um, I'm a huge believer, obviously, in, in a deep dive protocol, and it's what I've, in, I've invested, you know, all of my attention toward um, over the past years. But we, we have created a membership that goes with the book called Vital Life Project, and this membership is not for those who need the deep dive. It's for people who are kind of curious, you know, like window shoppers a little bit, and who just want to kind of like dip a toe in. And I thought, well, that doesn't work, you know, so why are we bothering? Like, I was hugely skeptical. And, 
we did it anyway also because I've been working a lot on you know softening a lot of my rigid places and and really trying to see a perspective that's more encompassing so not just for the people who are ready to commit in this rigid disciplined way but does that mean we leave out you know all of the other people who might be interested or open or curious but aren't ready to you know dive in the deep end and so in this membership we do one week a month uh, like a self-experiment related to self-care and it can range from like putting your feet on the ground for 15 minutes a day to changing all your beverages out to only drink water filtered water to um, meditating for five minutes a day but just for a week right so it's just a little sampler and the one that you know has been so consistently game-changing for people is simply changing breakfast so we have what's called the breakfast challenge but we've been getting feedback for years about this smoothie recipe that's like so not a huge deal. I made it up. I literally made it up because I was like sick of eating scrambled eggs. And uh, it's basically like, tastes like chocolate milk and it has a lot of natural fats in it like ghee and coconut oil and nut butters and um, raw egg yolks and, uh, and then frozen cherries and cacao and coconut water. That's it. And in whatever proportions, like it's not even a very rigid recipe and there's no kale and there's no vegetables really you know and I think it's because when you start your day instead of with you know a special K bar or a bagel when you start your day with something that is high in natural fat and you have all this blood sugar stuff going on literally in one week you can feel like a different human being even if you do nothing else to me that is shocking because I thought you had to do everything else at the same time so I'm learning, you know, that sometimes those simple choices, um, and especially maybe just starting your day with a different choice for breakfast, um, you know, maybe just one that's gluten, dairy, sugar-free, see how that goes. And, you know, it, it can just give you that little window that can be very disruptive because if you can't make room in your old story for this new experience, then you have to create a new story. And that is your, your invitation. Dr. Kelly Brogan, you're amazing. Um, we're going to place, can, can we share that recipe? Is it okay if I put that oh, in the yeah, show? Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's all over. I now. made it. It was delicious. <laughs> I did initially go, hmm, raw eggs. And then I thought, well, if, if Kelly's doing it, it must be fine. And I do buy, you know, organic pasture-raised eggs. So I made sure to wash the eggs. And you're right. It's so creamy and so delicious. It's so simple, it's I know. Simple and keeps you satiated. So... So, folks, if you're watching or listening, check out the show notes. We're going to put the recipe in there. That's the one small change that Dr. Kelly would like you to try. So give it a shot and then come back to HealCircles.org and tell us how you feel. And, um, you know, join HealCircles.org. That's our social network for health where we're trying to create a, sp a safe space, a place for community, a place for tribe where you've got someone listening to you. You can share and um, with that said, this is Rena Jadav signing off. I'm going to see you on another podcast soon. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much again. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.